Hello, I'm Ed Needham, editor of the fabulous literary magazine Strong Words, and this is my podcast, The Five Rules of Writing. In each episode, I speak to a most excellent writer in a particular genre about how they do it. And if you'd like to know more about Strong Words, and specifically how to subscribe, go to www.strong-words.co.uk and you'll be whisked straight to the website. Hello and welcome to The Five Rules of Writing, brought to you by Strong Words magazine. Now, this is a podcast where I talk to writers about the five things they know to be true in writing, whatever it is that they write for a living. So whether they spend their days penning limericks for children or translating Tolstoy, there are some aspects of their work that are absolutely non-negotiable. Now, sharing his five rules today is a master of ancient and pre-modern history. Among his works are histories of the Roman Republic, the Imperial House of Caesar, ancient Persia, and histories of Christianity and Islam. But along the way, he has also reinvented, or at least reinvigorated, the history book by taking something that was traditionally thought of as a bit of a slog at best and turning it into something gripping, vivid, and perhaps the first time in the history of the history book, something people looked forward to reading. So I'd like to welcome ancient history's reigning king of the castle, Tom Holland. Tom, welcome. Thank you very much. I think you are exaggerating. <laughs> I, I think there'll be plenty of historians that people look forward to reading. Well, I look forward it's to... very uh, kind of you, very kind of me. <laughs> I look forward to uh, hearing their angry knock on the door. But, you, Tom, you've completely sort of identified and come to dominate your niche as a writer but, and a, as a scholar and scholar of ancient history. But you started off writing in a, an entirely different genre. Right? Vampires. Well, I, even before the vampires, I wanted to be a great novelist. This was so. So my first love was was history, and then I I kind of got the literature bug in my teens and decided basically that I wanted to be Proust, which is obviously <laughs> a kind of lunatic <laughs> ambition to have. But uh, that's what I I decided I wanted to do, and I um I basically started writing vampire novels um to try and make money while I wrote the great novel and the great novel was never completed. Um, and I ended up with a contract to write four vampire novels. So that's what I did. And the vampire novels were all set in specific periods of history. So the first one was Lord Byron as a vampire and he literally was a vampire. So I had to do you know, lots of research into his life and poetry to, to, to back this thesis up. Then I did one set in late Victorian London, one set in the, the Commonwealth and early restoration period in the 17th century. Then I did one on um, Tutankhamen. Tutankhamen's a vampire. So <laughs> vampires were popping up all over the course of history. Uh, and Tutankhamen's probable father, Akhenaten, the, the heretic pharaoh, and it all tied in with um, the Fatimid Caliph, Al-Hakim, who was the, the, the Muslim Caligula, as he's known, um, and Howard Carter and... Um, Discovery uh, of Tutankhamun's tomb. So I put a lot of research, particularly into that one, um, and because it was a vampire novel, nobody kind of paid any attention to the research at all. But I, I just realised doing that that actually the, um, the the real history was much more exciting than the vampires. I mean, the story of Akhenaten and Tutankhamun didn't need vampires to spice it up at all, um, and so that's why I decided, um, in a kind of very roundabout way, I d decided that I would I would write narrative history i would write real history okay and did, did that also sort of make you think that perhaps ancient history held greater promise of providing an income 
wasn't so much, well, I, I, so the first book I wrote was on the fall of the Roman Republic, which in my opinion is the, the single most thrilling narrative basically in, in, um, in the whole field of history. And the only conceivable rival would be the Persian invasion of Greece um, in the, the, the fifth century, which was actually the second history book that I then wrote. So I wrote them because I was fascinated by the subjects and I thought they were amazing topics. And when I wrote them, um, this kind of ancient history wasn't being written. So it was kind of like an open goal. I couldn't believe that no one had written this kind of history about the fall of the Republic because it's such a great story. Mm -hmm. um, so that was really why I wanted to do it. But also I wanted to do it just because, you know, those were the periods of history that I loved best and always had done since childhood. And the odd thing is that um, people often say you should write about what you know and what you love. Uh, and in fiction, that's entirely understood. So it's never a surprise that people um, write novels about that are deeply rooted in their childhood, in their upbringing, in their kind of formative experiences. But I, I think often the, the same is true for nonfiction as well. And it was certainly the case for me that part of, um, of what I wanted to write about and wanted to convey was a sense of the excitement that I had felt in, in reading and being obsessed by these topics when I was a child. And did you come at it with a plan to make history a bit less dreary and a more exciting read? I, as I say, I wanted to convey what it was about these periods that had thrilled me as a child and be true to that sense of excitement while also being true to the thrill of academic research because academic research is thrilling as well. And the fact that we know anything about these distant periods is amazing. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to convey to readers who may not particularly know about the period, both the excitement of the narrative, but also the excitement that surrounds the academic study of it was absolutely what I wanted to do. So it's not a kind of either or, it's not a, um, you know, a populist, let's get rid of anything boring, kind of against a kind of dry, dusty, scholarly, let's sit in the library. Both, in my opinion, are, are, are travesties of, of, of what can be offered, because I think that, that scholarship at its best is at least as exciting as, you know, the, the, the raw material of Caesar's commentaries or uh, Herodotus's account of the Persian invasion. Um, scholarship is thrilling. And I, that was absolutely part of what I wanted to do was to convey a sense of the thrill of the scholarship as well as of the, of the narrative. From Strong Words magazine, these are the five rules of writing. Let's have a look at your five rules. I think for anybody who's thinking of embarking on a formidable history project or a history project of any sort I think this is particularly good advice so uh, uh, let's um, let's get cracking with these now your first rule you say save things up that you are looking forward to researching delayed gratification will, will keep your interest fresh over the entire course of writing your book how does this work for you so when you come to um, to, to research say a period of history um, you, you'll probably come to it, as at least I do, with, with a kind of a, a pretty informed knowledge, because otherwise you wouldn't want to be writing about it. You write about what you're interested in. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, there's, there's, there's a sense in which um, actually researching and writing about something sharpens your knowledge very, very intensely. 
Um, and so you will find that you have to do a, a, an enormous amount of preparatory work just to lay the foundations. Um, and the risk with that is that um, you do so much work on it that it becomes boring. You get bored of it. You, you become too familiar with it. And the sense of, of shock and excitement uh, starts to, to wane. And if, you, if you're feeling bored of it, then it's going to be harder for you to convince your readers that it's not boring. Um, so what I always try and do is that even as I absolutely immerse myself in research material, I have a, a, a sense of what can be kind of left um, until I'm absolutely ready to write so that I can then spend two or three days immersed in a, in a particular field or maybe even, you know, a particular um, aspect of scholarship, completely immerse myself in it, and then whoosh, I'm, I'm, ready, to, I'm ready to hit the ground running. Um, so what, and, what's your idea of something that you look forward to researching? Well, so I'm just, at the moment, um, I've, I've just begun work on a third uh, volume in the history of Rome that I'm doing. So the first one was the fall of the Roman Republic. The second one was the, um, the the first dynasty of the Caesars, ending with um, Nero. And I am um, the, the opening chapter is focused around um, uh, a relationship that Nero had after his beloved wife Pompeia Sabina had died, possibly kicked to death by Nero. I mean that was that was the rumor, um, and. He then did what, what anybody in his situation would do, which was to look around for someone who looked exactly like Papaya, find that it was a boy, castrate the boy, and then dress him up as his dead wife and treat him as his wife. Now, there's, there's all kinds of interest. You know, I know, I know that that is a great way into all kinds of things, but there are um, particular aspects, of, you know, the history of eunuchs and things like that that um, I know are, are going to be great and are going to be fascinating. So I'm saving them up. So I'm going to read them before I, as the last thing, as the last thing that I research before I start writing the passage. So it's 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 saving particular things up that you know are going to be great, and not being greedy, and not kind of rushing and doing all the research beforehand. Okay. How long does it take you to write a, a history book? Well, how long is a piece of string? Um, I guess the average length of a book for me is about 150,000 words. Um, and if it's if it's a, a kind of a, a lengthy topic, then it could take anything up to four years. So I've just done a history of Christianity, um, you know, which is a, a, an insanely ambitious project that essentially required me to research two and a half thousand years of history. So that took me four to five years. Um, but having said that, I was drawing on a lot of stuff that I'd already researched and knew about. Wow. Um, uh, I guess the current book I'm doing will take me a couple of years. Um, so anything between two to four years. Well, so you need a, you're going to need a lot of eunuchs and uh, boys dressed as dead wives to sustain you through that kind of um, a five year cycle. Well, Nero, Nero, and and um, and his eunuch bride die fairly quickly. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so we move on from them. Okay, so getting through the. You know that the hard grind kind of brings us to, to rule two. You say, like an iceberg, except that most of the research you do will be underwater. Presumably, you mean this is there's just a, a, a an enormous amount of background you have to get through. Yeah, the, the risk is that if you research something that you put it in, um, I mean, I mean, it's and you you get this in both academic works and historical novels that you can tell that 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 people have, have done so much research 
that they can't bear to let any of it go to waste. So in it all goes. But actually, um, I, I've always felt that the, 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 the best evocations of history are those that um, kind of hint at, at, at buried depths. And that's what I w w have always tried to do is to suggest, you know, is always to leave stuff out. Um, because in a way that's then hinting at the kind of depth that, um, you know, these, these societies would have had. Um, mm -hmm. It's impossible to convey the totality of a society. Whenever you write about something, you're always um, leaving things unsaid and unacknowledged. Um, and I, so, so I think that um, the, the deepest foundations are those that you don't see. Okay, so I, I also think that you tend to write about subjects that people feel actually a bit, bit guilty about, that they don't, you know, they feel guilty about not knowing more. You know, for example, I never learned about uh, Julius Caesar at school or the Bible or, or in fact, or any Roman emperors. And your books very kind of successfully filled these sort of blocks of information that I really felt I ought to know more about. Is that how you approach them? You know, do you think, you know, I wonder what people feel they ought to know more about. What I, what I absolutely, um, the difficulty with writing, um, I think particularly about religion, although I think it's also true of classical history, is that there are lots of people who don't really know it and who do feel that they should, and who might feel um, that they're being kind of looked down on if I, as the writer, am taking knowledge for granted. Um, because, you know, why should they know stuff if they haven't studied at school or anything? I mean, it's, it's, it's not a given. Um, and so I, I try never to take anything for granted. And in doing that, actually, you are then being kind of true to a sense of the excitement of the source material. Because if you're writing about, say, Julius Caesar with the sense that nobody knows anything about it, then you're, you, nobody knows what's going to happen. Then in a, in a sense, you're occupying the terrain of Caesar's contemporaries. Mm -hmm. They didn't know the route was going to be crossed. They didn't know that Caesar was going to defeat Pompey. They didn't know that he was going to end up dictator and murdered. By, by his fellow senators. So if you write on the assumption that, that nobody knows that, then, then I think that, um, you know, firstly, you are, um, you're making it fresh. And secondly, you're trying to, you're recognizing that events as they happened were always contingent. There was never any certainty that they were going to happen. Mm -hmm. And even though we know that the, the lines of, of history, the narratives of history have, been, have already been written, people living in them didn't know that. Okay, and uh, you mentioned, you know, with uh, earlier on that uh, you felt it was a bit of an open goal that these things hadn't been written about. But um, these are these are big subjects. You know, how do you how do you how do you go about finding something new? Well, the um, I think in, uh, one of the reasons why I'm drawn to to ancient uh, and early medieval history and to um, perhaps. To, to mythical and religious narratives as well, is that um, these are already shaped as literary source material. So the biblical narratives are the most formative narratives on how stories have been constructed in the West. So if you're engaging with them, if you're engaging with the story of Exodus, or if you're engaging with the parables or, or the story of Christ's life, um, these provide 
profound archetypes that in themselves are material are, are, are narratives that have shaped how we understand history and how people over the course of Western history have behaved. So that provides enormous scope if you're if you're a writer that you can play with this. That that in a sense history is both an academic discipline and a literary uh, a literary form. And I guess that I I try to to be um, true to both those traditions. Um, and if you're looking at ancient ancient history, you know the source material, the prime source material, say for the Persian Wars, is the histories of Herodotus, first historian, who is a great and a very distinctively great writer, and provides huge opportunities when you're writing about the Persian Wars to pay homage to Herodotus, because in a sense you were thereby acknowledging that the source material isn't the kind of source material that you'd have if you were writing about, say, 21st century history. You know, this is this is stuff that is that is mediated through a literary form of history, mm. and in a sense, to deny that is to de- is is not to be true to the source material. So it's it's kind of it's kind of like I I always feel when I watch films or when I read historical novels that in too great an emphasis on say realism when you're when you say medieval or ancient periods is not is not true to the the source material because you can't have that realism and because the ambition to have realism is in itself a kind of you know 19th century ambition mm-hmm. um so what you will do if you do that is you'll end up writing something that that, that is more reminiscent of Walter Scott than it might be of Tacitus or of Herodotus say okay now you rule 3 you say it kind of also touches on this perhaps you say avoid anachronistic language this sounds like a very personal dislike so uh, obviously there are all kinds of metaphors that um, draw or draw on um, uh, 21st century, 20th century, 19th century images. Anything to do with gunpowder or trains or watches or anything like that is, is inherently anachronistic. So my rule of thumb is always only ever to, if I'm going to use metaphors or perhaps I should even say cliches, make sure that they are compatible with the period that I'm writing about. But it goes deeper than that. Um, And one of the reasons why I wanted to write Dominion, the the book I did about the history of Christianity, which essentially argues that we are, whether we are believing Christians or not, so profoundly shaped by the inheritance of Christianity that um, essentially we are are goldfish swimming in a bowl and the the waters are Christian. And one of the things that really brought this home to me over the process of writing about classical Greece and Rome, so the pre-Christian world, was that certain words in English were so impregnated with Christian assumptions and significations that they became impossible to use. So religion would be one, that that religion carries such a, a Christian, and I would say specifically Protestant kind of sense, that to use it to describe what the Greeks were doing when they went up to the Acropolis, say, mm-hmm. or the Romans when they consulted the Sibylline books, um, was was anachronistic. Even I would I would say, um, if you're describing what monks are doing in the fourth or fifth century, it's anachronistic. Um, secular homosexuality, all these kind of words that have a coinage that has been shaped by the history of Christianity, and would have meant nothing to people in Greece and Rome. And, you know, and there are even words that, that have a clearly um, 
so, 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 so secular does derive from a Roman word, but it doesn't have the meaning that it has for us. Or democracy, you know, famously a Greek word. But because our understanding of, of democracy is shaped by Christianity, it's very, very difficult to see what the Greeks meant by democracy without doing it through Christian lenses. So you have to kind of take off your Christian tinted contact lenses to try and see what the Greeks meant by, by democracy. And it's something very, very different. And, and so that's, that's the, the huge, huge challenge and fun of it is that you are, is that, that in a sense, English, the English language, because it's so, so impregnated with Christian assumptions is a kind of enemy. And you have to, it's a slippery tool to use when you're trying to write about these very different and alien civilizations. So that, that massively slims your vocabulary down that's available to you then, presumably. Yeah, well, I, think it, I think it broadens it out because if you're, rather than um, using the word religion to describe the relationship of, say, you know, a Roman to the gods, um, because there isn't a kind of a single word that sums it up, it, it obliges you to, to kind of work out in a more truthful and honest way, I think, what, what exactly the the scope of a human being's relationship to the gods might have been, and thereby, by doing that, to explore it in a more comprehensive way than just by talking about, say, Roman religion. And and as you take such great care over this, does, do you find yourself um, sort of throwing other people's books in the swimming pool when you come across uh, a more casual approach to vocabulary? I, I, sometimes, I... I I think that, um, you know, there are very great scholars who, who do use, you know, there are, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a wonderful book called Roman Homosexuality by a great scholar. And he says in, in the opening, I've called it this, but, but homosexuality is not a word that should be used. So I'm not going to use it anymore. I've just used this, you know, basically <laughs> to get you to buy the book. Um, so that's on. But then you do get people who, who I think do use words like um, democracy or, or religion in, in, a, in a way that is clumsy, I think, yeah. Okay. And it does annoy me. Okay. And your fourth rule, I think, is also kind of connected to this a little bit. You say, uh, no, so rule four is avoid the condescension of posterity. Where do you see this at its most outrageous? I think there's, I think there's a huge amount of it at the moment. Um, the, I, I, think, I think we're living through a period of great moral ferment that I think is kind of analogous to the, the Protestant Reformation, to be honest, since the 60s. I, I think that assumptions about how people should behave, what's right and wrong, has, has, has changed at such a furious pace that it, trying to keep up with it can often feel like kind of running up a down escalator. Um, and one of, the, um, one of the markers of an age where the sense of progress is speeding up is that um, people rapidly, you know, their, their views, their opinions, even their language can come to seem anachronistic um, very, very fast. And so you can end up sitting in judgment on something that somebody said, you know, two years ago, that two years ago might have been completely inoffensive, let alone four decades ago, let alone two, two centuries ago, let alone 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one of the aspects of um, the humanities generally, I think, is that, that I do not like because it's easy and lazy is to have a kind of um, framework of um you know were these people sexist were they racist were they imperialist whatever and essentially you were measuring them against your own standard your own moral standards the moral standards of 
previous ages were very different. And that to me is part of the fascination of it because it's about going back into a world that is different. It's the difference quite as much as the similarities that are fascinating. So if I'm writing about, you know, again, it's kind of sharpened for me in the book about Christianity because people's sense about what is right and wrong is, is changing all the time. So, so the sense of what someone in the Middle Ages might think is right and the sense of what somebody in the, in the, the heart, heartlands of the, of the Reformation thinks is right, or then again in the Enlightenment, then again in the 20th century is very different. Be true to what they thought is what I try and do. So I try and inhabit the minds of those that I'm writing about. Um, not surrendering to them completely, but being trying to, to, to go with the grain of what they think. Um, and that's true as well of the dimension of the supernatural. So, um, you know, that's obviously very important if you're writing about um, you know, what Christians believed about angels, what Muslims believed about angels or whatever. But I remember in um, Persian Fire, the book I wrote about the, the, the Persian invasions of Greece, writing about how the Persians understood the world and how the Greeks understood, um, the, sorry, how the Persians understood the dimension of the divine and how the Greeks understood the dimension of the divine. And they're so different, they're so different that essentially they sum up very profoundly um, the incompatibility of two radically different ways of understanding the world. So by, inhabit by looking at the world through the Persians and in one chapter, and then looking through the world through the eyes of the Greeks in another, it's the best way that I found to dramatize the, 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 the kind of profound cultural, intellectual um, differences between these two ways of understanding the world. And is there, you know, having shed yourself of all your 21st, 20th century modern, um, you know, ideas and knowledge and perspective, is there a pair of shoes you particularly enjoyed work walking in from the ancient world? I, I, I love the Greek gods. And I love the way that um, so the Persian the Persian understanding of the, of the of the world is basically the one that we have. So one of the the kind of great realizations writing about about the Persians and the Greeks was that we owe at least as much to the Persians as we do to the Greeks because the Persians saw the world as being divided into rival spheres of good and evil, um, light and dark, uh, truth and and lie, um, and that's an understanding of the world that that basically we've inherited because it that that profoundly influences the Jews, Christians, Muslims. You know, that's that's where we are at. For the Greeks, um, the, the gods lie and are, are kind of terrifying. And um, Herodotus kind of notes it as an interesting foible of foreigners that when they get an oracle, they just do what it says. <laughs> um, the Greeks, you know, they, Apollo is known as Loxias, the, the, the one who twists and turns. So there's a truth in, in, in what Apollo is saying, but it's never apparent and it may well deceive you. And that's, that's par for the course, <laughs> that's what the <laughs> gods do. And so, and yet there's a, a kind of terrible power and charisma that the, that the Greek gods have. And seeing the world through those eyes, seeing that, you know, a world in which, um, you know, I talked about democracy. D democracy for the, for the Greeks is the power of the demos and the demos is the sum of, um, not just the living people who are born of the earth of Attica, but those who, who, who live before, those who will come. So it's the totality of them. And if, the, if it's the men who have the vote, who sit in the assembly, who go off and fight, 
then that doesn't demean the fact that the role of the women above all is to mediate with with Athena and the gods that's just as important a role and so the um the the the, the ceremonies that involve the women going up to the Acropolis to, to to perform rituals, to commune with the gods, to to keep the gods on side, just as important. And the sense of the kind of the, the power and the glamour and the terror of someone like Athena is very exciting. I found it, you know, I, I it, and and completely true to the world. I mean, just as true to the world it seemed to me as 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 the the kind of the Christian understanding. Um, I mean, much more frightening. <laughs> very good. Uh, so to calm us down from that uh, terrible prospect your fifth rule is uh, a magnificent one go for long walks now this is one subject that i do not need any convincing on but how do you explain the benefits to a skeptic um i i think i think there's some isn't there some kind of physiological thing that walking fires up the synapses or something i i mean i i i find that if i am you know if 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 I'm not interested in the subject, if I've suddenly, I find it boring, you know, it can suddenly happen. You can read a book and just think, oh God, this is boring. And it feels like your brain is coated with dust suddenly. Or you're staring at a paragraph and the words start to swim in front of you and you forget, you know, how to, you forget your grammar, you forget how to spell, you can't do it. <laughs> and if, if it's like that, there's no point in carrying on because anything you do is going to be bad. So go out and let the wind or the fresh air remove the dust. And walking, I find is the best way to think. So I tend not to listen to, to music or to podcasts if I'm walking, because I, I want to use the time to, to, to think and to ponder. Um, and you know, if you're writing um, about an entire ancient world, you need time and space to, to, to get to grips with it, to, to kind of let it marinate in your thoughts, if you like. Um, and walking is the best way to do that. Uh, and I've always, it, it, I've always liked walking. And to be honest, over the, um, over, over the past year, one of the advantages of the lockdown, and I'm aware that's a phrase that one shouldn't use too often, <laughs> but one of the advantages of lockdown for me has been that I've had nothing else to do except go for very, very long walks. So I'm in London. I've just walked all over London, kind of in a, a you know, like Dickens or somebody. Um, and and, and I've I found that that has been a kind of, um, at no point have I, have I felt... Um, claustrophobic or overwhelmed by the lockdown it hasn't stopped me from writing it's I've, I've I've felt completely fresh when it comes to writing and I'm sure it's because I've been doing these very very long walks I, I feel a sense of liberation of excitement of um of potential just going out there and walking for miles across this amazing city okay now I always say that as a journalist my dream scoop would be to interview Satan at home what would your dream come true be as an ancient historian what would you like to discover? Or, My, well, I, you know, there are so many upon. texts. There are so many texts that are missing. Um, there's there's a large chunk of Tacitus, his annals that are missing, including what, what would be in, what would include, be well, including the life of Caligula, okay. um, and I, that's really what I would love to find, um, and um, and then a, a large chunk of the histories which 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 he wrote, which um, kind of ends with with the build-up to the siege of Jerusalem and Vespasian becoming emperor 
and he's just begun to talk about the Jews um, in, in such interesting terms, and then it stops, and to find all those, you know, would be amazing. And I think not, in, not, not, hundred percent impossible do you think these things somewhere might somewhere in a kind of jar in a remote monastery perhaps <laughs> or you know, the, the dusty depths of the vatican library or something perhaps um, perhaps it can be done quite magnificent tom thank you so much for talking to me it's been hugely enjoyable a real privilege and um thanks again absolute pleasure thank you from strong words magazine these are the five rules of writing <laughs>